Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. What Does the Study of Architecture Teach Us? by David R. Doan, Deputy Grandmaster. And of course, this is from 2004. He is now a past Grandmaster. Masonry uses symbols and allegories to remind us of the lessons taught by our individual faiths. Architecture traces its roots to the study of nature and the observation of her beautiful proportions that led man to study symmetry and order. This enabled man to imitate God's divine plan and build great structures. Thus, the art of architecture was born. The tools and implements of architecture, most expressive, were selected by our craft to impress upon the memory of each of us wise and serious truths so that down through the ages, man will remember the important tenets of our craft. The study of architecture teaches us that man uses his own experience and the knowledge of God's divine plan to learn how to change to meet the needs of his time. In the beginning, man used wood and mud to build shelters. Over time, by studying the art of architecture and with the experience of time, man learned to use stronger materials from the earth. From wood and mud, he learned to use wood and stone, then refined minerals from the earth to make iron, and then steel to build even stronger and taller buildings. Today's largest buildings still follow the rules of architecture that imitate the symmetry and order of God's divine plan. Had man not learned from his experiences and adjusted to the needs and improved the tools of his time, we would still be living in mud huts. Not all of the man's changes have worked, but those that truly followed the symmetry and order of the divine plan have advanced architecture and improved our lives. This is an important lesson of architecture that is often overlooked. Change is not only good, it is necessary. Your Grand Lodge leadership team is tackling the challenge of making changes that will allow our fraternity to adapt to the times in which we live while maintaining the symmetry and order that is at the heart of what we as Masons hold dear. We must not focus on how we have done things, but rather why we do things and what principle it supports. The symmetry and order of our fraternity is evident in the lessons we teach and in how a man lives his life as a Mason. Instead of depending on our candidates to memorize a few lines from each degree, we need to improve the way in which we teach our members the meaning of the symbols and allegories of the craft. It is not how we were made a Mason that matters, but rather how well we live our lives as Masons. It is by the amiable, discreet, and virtuous conduct as Masons that we teach the world the goodness of our great fraternity. By changing to meet the needs of our times while maintaining the symmetry and order of our craft, we demonstrate that we understand the lessons architecture teaches us about God's divine plan. Cornerstone Ceremonies, Carrying on a Masonic Tradition by Richard Berman Friends and brethren, it has been a custom among the fraternity of free and accepted Masons, from time immemorial, to assemble for the purpose of laying the foundation stones of certain buildings when requested to do so by those having authority. With these words, Grand Master Howard D. Kirkpatrick commenced the solemn Masonic cornerstone ceremony for Temple Heights School in Vista, California. 
Hosted by Vista Lodge No. 687, the January 31st event was an opportunity for local Freemasons to celebrate the construction of a new school in their community, located 40 miles north of San Diego. For members of the craft, these dedication ceremonies not only promote our freedoms, but they also remind us that all enduring things, buildings and people alike, must be built on a firm foundation. The tradition of Masons laying cornerstones for American public institutions is nearly as old as the Republic itself. This is hardly surprising, as many of the early leaders of the United States were members of the craft. In 1791, a team of surveyors used a Masonic cornerstone to help mark the borders of the new city of Washington, D.C., and the following year, Brother Peter Casanave of Lodge No. 9 of Maryland led a cornerstone ceremony to mark the start of construction of the President's House, known today as the White House. On September 18, 1793, former President George Washington was present at the ceremony honoring the building of the U.S. Capitol. The grand affair was attended by hundreds of Masons and created a strong symbolic link between the craft and the democratic institutions of the new American nation. There have been four other cornerstone ceremonies to celebrate expansion of the original building, and in 1993, more than 350 Masons gathered in Washington to celebrate the Capitol's bicentennial. The first cornerstone ceremony in California was held in September 1848, even before the state's admission to the Union, to dedicate the county courthouse of Sacramento County. For more than a decade, the building served as the California Capitol until a new structure was commissioned by Governor John G. Downey, a 34-year-old Irish immigrant who had come to the West Coast in the wake of the gold rush. Downey, California's first foreign-born governor, was an active Freemason, and he invited his brothers in the craft to host a cornerstone ceremony on May 15, 1861. By all accounts, the dedication of the new Capitol building was a major event attended by members of the California Assembly and Senate, city and state officials, and Freemasons from across the state. That evening, Downey hosted a formal dinner for more than 400 guests. In 1978, the state capitol was again the site of a cornerstone ceremony to mark the first major renovation of the structure. Following a 1971 earthquake, California spent more than $68 million over the course of seven years to restore the building to its original splendor. According to California Construction Link, this was a full restoration of the historic portion of the capitol. The interior was gutted and they did a seismic retrofit and restoration of all the historical features. The 1978 ceremony, over which then-Grandmaster Donald B. McCall presided, was every bit as dignified as the original dedication more than a century earlier. The day started with an awe-inspiring procession featuring a fife and drum corps, members of the California National Guard, school children, the 59th United States Army Band, the top state officials joined by hundreds of brothers in honoring the renovated state capitol building. Later that afternoon, dozens of dignitaries were on hand for the solemn rededication ceremony on the Capitol grounds. Officers of the Grand Lodge used their jewels to symbolically assist the soundness of the structure, and the cornerstone was laid with an offering of corn, wine, and oil. The evening banquet was chaired by Chief Judge and brother Thomas J. McBride of the Eastern District of California for the Ninth Circuit of Federal District Courts. One of the best-known elements of the Masonic Cornerstone Ceremony is the casket a sealed container placed inside the building's foundation so an enduring record may be found by succeeding generations to bear testimony to the untiring, unending industry of the free and accepted Masons. A list of the contents of the casket, often referred to as a time capsule, is often read aloud during the ceremony. 
1978 Sacramento casket contains items from the original 1861 vessel, including coins, newspapers, and the 1860 proceedings of the Grand Lodge of California. 20th century objects include letters from President Jimmy Carter and Governor Jerry Brown, a state seismic study, and two bottles of California wine. Although cornerstone ceremonies are less common today than in previous decades, they are still an important part of masonry in California. From 2000 to 2003, more than 100 dedications were held for public institutions, such as libraries, schools, museums, veterans' homes, and fire departments, as well as for lodges and the Masonic homes in Union City and Covina. Advances in construction technology have eliminated the need for functional cornerstones in most modern buildings, but the need for symbolic cornerstones remains strong, not only in architecture, but in the public and private lives of all Americans. In an era often defined by moral ambiguity, it may be more important than ever to have an unyielding, unwavering reminder of the principles of the craft. It is through ancient traditions such as the cornerstone ceremony that today's Freemasons can forge a link between the past and the present and strive for a future guided by wisdom and justice. A Look at California Lodge's Distinctive Architecture Eureka Lodge No. 16 in Auburn one of Auburn's finest examples of the Beaux Arts style of architecture, this building has been the home of Eureka Lodge ever since it was built in 1917. An eclectic neoclassical style, Beaux Arts architecture flourished between 1885 and 1920, combining ancient Greek and Roman forms with Renaissance ideas. The profusion of columns grandiosity of these buildings made Beaux Arts a favored style for museums and government buildings. The original construction used low-temperature or soft-fired brick for the walls and timbers that were milled in the Dutch Flat Alta area and transported by rail to Auburn. The front facade overlay is made of sand-molded terracotta from the Placer County firm of Gladding McBean. The temple is the last remaining building of Auburn's original central square. In an effort to help preserve this historic building, the native sons of the Golden West dedicated it as a point of historical significance on September 12, 1998. Petaluma Hamilton Lodge, number 180, in Petaluma. Petaluma Lodge, number 77, was granted a charter in February 1855. The lodge met in various rented facilities in downtown Petaluma. Following the Civil War, several brethren formed Arcturus Lodge, number 180, in 1866, which rented the same facilities and shared paraphernalia with Petaluma Lodge. In 1879, the two lodges purchased a lot at the corner of Main Street and Western Avenue. After having the cornerstone placed by Grand Lodge, the three-story red-brick Italian Elegante building, with its unique cast-iron front facade and the clock tower on the roof, was completed in 1882. In 1898, the two Masonic lodges merged and formed Petaluma Lodge No. 180. Like many Italianate buildings, the lodge features decorative paired brackets and cornices, tall and narrow paired windows, a balanced symmetrical facade, and a square cupola. During the Depression, the original wooden clock cupola had deteriorated. Funds were not available to repair or replace the tower. When the townsfolk learned that the tower would be torn down, they decided to save it. Ultimately, a solution was created that transferred title of the clock tower to the city, and the wooden tower was replaced with a copper cupola, as it is today. The, the city still sends one of their electricians once a week to wind the clock. Santa Monica Masonic Center
More than 200 members contributed to the construction of the Santa Monica Masonic Temple, which was officially dedicated on May 8, 1923. Architect W. Asa Hudson, a member of the lodge, designed the building. The two-story structure included six commercial spaces on the first floor, along with a large lodge room, banquet room, and several club rooms exclusively for lodge use on the second floor. In the pre-dawn hours of Monday, January 21, 1994, disaster struck this beautiful monument to masonry. The Northridge earthquake, as it is now known, caused extensive damage to the exterior and left the interior of the building in ruin. At a stated meeting six months later, the lodge members voted to embark on a project that would restore the temple to its pre-earthquake condition. They secured the architectural services of Mr. James F. Kearns to prepare the design for the reconstruction and to coordinate the engineering and permitting efforts. Three years and $2.35 million later, the temple was restored to its original splendor with the additional safety of seismic reinforcement. The building's interior is especially beautiful. The lodge room is adorned with Masonic symbols that grace the walls and ceilings. Upholstery and curtains are made of an elegant blue plush fabric. The anterooms and Tyler's quarters are also lavishly fitted. The large club room is embellished with an impressive fireplace, and the adjoining billiards and luncheon rooms are appointed with nice furnishings, wood trim, and handsome wall coverings. The official rededication ceremonies for the renovated temple were held May 18, 1997. Coincidentally, the same date as the original dedication, nearly 75 years earlier. Moral Architecture by John L. Cooper III, Grand Secretary. And John L. Cooper III is now also a past Grand Master. Freemasonry sometimes takes surprising turns as it unfolds its beauties to a candidate. Just when he thinks he has figured out the general direction of a train of thought, he has taken in a different, sometimes startling direction. So it is when a fellow craft mason hears for the first time the interest that Freemasons have in architecture. As an entered apprentice, he is introduced to the idea that he is building a spiritual house, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He is symbolically placed close to the master of the lodge when he re-enters it, and is told that he is thus placed so that he will learn how to build his future moral and Masonic edifice. For the first time, he is told of the connection between architecture and morality, a theme pervasive in Freemasonry. In the lecture of the Fellowcraft degree, the candidate is told that Freemasonry consists of two fundamental concepts, operative masonry and speculative masonry. The lecture then goes on to describe the way in which operative masons build and after explaining how such knowledge is necessary for the building of physical structures, he is then told that today masons build non-material structures by shaping the material of their lives into something as useful as the physical buildings which shelter us from the inclemencies of the weather. A speculative mason is to subdue his passions, act upon the square, keep a tongue of good report, maintain secrecy, and practice charity. This brief introduction is followed by a more lengthy discussion of architecture itself, and especially classical architecture, with its emphasis on symmetry and order, upon form and beauty. Masons of the 17th and 18th centuries were fascinated by classical architecture. The architecture of ancient Greece and Rome, they contrasted the principles of this type of architecture with those of the Middle Ages, the so-called Gothic architecture that was so different. Without understanding why classical architecture was so important to those who created our lectures, we cannot truly understand what they were trying to tell us, and as a result, much of the lesson is easily missed. As an example, take the five orders of architecture. 
The senior deacon explains the five orders to the candidate, but nothing is said as to why they are important to him as a Mason. If he is perceptive, he must be puzzled, because he was earlier told that Masons today are philosophical or speculative, and surely this bit of information pertains to operative Masonry. Unless the candidate is professionally an architect, or intends on becoming one, this bit of information is surely not very useful. Or is it? Is there something hidden here for the candidate to learn by induction? I believe there is, and here is a meaning to consider. Classical architecture is classified into categories by the types of columns that supported as well as decorated the building. Although the Romans were familiar with the arch, they generally used it only in utilitarian architecture, such as aqueducts. Temples and other public buildings followed the traditional means of supporting the roof by a series of closely spaced pillars or columns, and the Romans followed the Greeks in creating a sense of order and beauty by carving all the columns of a building in a similar manner. The earliest buildings used the simple technique of fluting of columns to make them seem slim and graceful, despite the sturdiness needed to hold up the great weight of the stone roof. To keep the columns from sinking into the ground or punching through the roof, they developed the concepts of caps, capitals on the columns. The way in which these capitals were carved determined the orders in architecture to which our lectures refer. The simplest is no capital at all, or only a rudimentary one, the Tuscan, which, although a late development, took simplicity to one extreme. The most ornate of the three types was the Corinthian, a capital decorated with acanthus leaves, making the column to appear as if it were a living, growing support for the building. The Doric added a plain capital, and the Ionic added a scroll-like carving to the primitive capital. The composite, in turn, blended the acanthus leaves of the Corinthian with the scroll-like capital of the Ionic. In this manner, classical architecture came to understand the five orders of architecture. Is there a symbolic meaning here for a mason? I think that there is. Our moral and Masonic edifice, our lives that we are building, are in reality supported by symbolic columns that raise our effort towards the heavens. There is an understanding that if what we build remains low and unimposing, it will never inspire any others to imitate what we have built. But by raising the superstructure on columns of beauty as well as utility, our moral and Masonic edifice soars into the sky. We choose the style in which we build, but all have an equal value, for all hold up the superstructure. Our understanding of life may be of the simplest variety, Tuscan if you will. On the other hand, others may build with great simplicity, but also with great symmetry. Their lives are marked by consistency and order. They are the Doric and Ionic columns, simple, honest, but also with a beauty of their own. Others may achieve great things in life, sometimes many great things, symbolized by the Corinthian and the composite. But all of us share the same values, the same understanding of Freemasonry, regardless of which order in architecture we use. One definition of Freemasonry is that it's moral architecture. If so, then one of the beautiful lessons we learn from the five orders of architecture is that diversity in how we build is of immense value. We are not all of the same religion, or the same race, or the same language but we all erect buildings of superb beauty according to our understanding of the art. We truly are engaged in building that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Reaching for the Sky, Masonic Principles and Modern Architecture by Richard Berman Imagine a 58-story Manhattan skyscraper inspired by Masonic values and designed to incorporate the symbols and principles of the craft. If San Francisco architect Yves Guiai Camlo had his way, 
that building would already exist. Envisioned as a 600-foot-high round glass atrium inside a breathtaking glass and steel square structure, the blueprints also call for a pyramid-shaped lobby, Masonic-inspired columns, and ponds to reflect the sun and the moon. Each side of the building would serve a different function, residential, retail, office, and hotel, and the top floors would make a village in the sky made up of retail shops and public areas. While the high-rise may sound like a flight of fancy, the Iranian-born French-educated Giai has already designed dozens of award-winning structures, including mansions, hotels, and even resorts, that are heavily steeped in the symbolism and philosophy of Freemasonry. While contemporary Masonic ritual and design traces its roots to the builders of the ancient world, the link is usually a symbolic one. For Giai, who was master of La Parfaite Union No. 17 in San Francisco for four years and grand standard bearer of Grand Lodge Nationale Francais, masonry is the central inspiration for his architectural work. By designing a space with substance, he says, something happens to the space, like something happens to a lodge when it is opened. Meeting Giai in front of his office in San Francisco's trendy marina district, it is immediately apparent that symbolism plays a central role in his life. Impeccably dressed in a purple French cuff shirt, a turtle tie for good luck, blue blazer, and pressed tan slacks, the eye is immediately drawn to the large gold icon stitched on the breast pocket of his immaculate jacket. The 46-year-old architect explains that the design is a fusion of a winged lion, his family's royal crest, framed by the initials GC, representing Giai Kamlu lineage. He makes little, if any, distinction between the design as a corporate logo and a symbol of his ancestry. Once inside the building, the door to his office features a modified version of the emblem in which the griffin has been replaced by the Masonic square, compass, and triangle. Various versions of the image are found throughout his office. To most Americans, the concept of a family crest is a historical curiosity. For Yves Guillaume, it is the core of his personal and professional identity. One of the seven royal families of Persia, his family has been one of the Iran's most prominent families for more than 700 years. In the early 20th century, the clan was an early supporter of Iran's effort to modernize its political system and adopted the surname of Giai Kamlo, which is often shortened to Giai, in place of his noble titles. Since their exile from Iran in the late 1970s, the crest has served as a tangible symbol of the family's heritage. In 1953, Haydar Giai Kamlo completed the second of his two doctorates at the prestigious École des Beaux-Arts in Paris and returned to Tehran to launch his career as an architect. His work received immediate acclaim and earned him the title the father of Iranian architecture before the age of 40. The young designer won commissions to create major public buildings, including the country's senate, and he became official architect to the imperial court and aide-de-camp to the Shah. By the mid-1970s, his construction and architecture business was worth more than a billion dollars. However, the overthrow of the Shah in 1978 forced the family to relocate to Paris and re-establish their business outside of Iran. To honor their heritage and homeland, the family selected the Giai Royal Crest as the new corporate logo. Upon Hadar's death in 1985, 28-year-old Eve took over the family business and for nearly 20 years has built an international reputation as an architect in his own right. He has designed numerous internationally renowned pieces, and his work has been featured in more than 20 magazines and newspapers. Eve has received awards from the Swiss government, and the city of San Francisco dedicated October 26th as Haydar Giai and Sons Day in recognition of the company's contributions to architecture in Northern California. 
While still a student in Paris, Yves became a Freemason at age 21 because he was attracted to the craft's ethical structure and symbolism. He explains that his Muslim father and Jewish mother raised him in a very spiritual environment guided by the principles of masonry, even though Haydar did not become a mason until he was in his 50s. Eves explains, In Iran, most businesses and political leaders were masons. My father didn't want to join because he didn't want to use the craft as a stepping stone or for monetary gain. Only after he was established did he feel it was right to become a mason. As important as his family has been in his career, Yves Giai credits the values and symbols of the craft as the cornerstone of his artistic vision. There has been a significant benefit to my membership in masonry. Every week I would go to the lodge. Entering the space, I am moved. From being in the room, I am able to keep my focus on the spirit of the design rather than just the practical value. Two of his buildings in the Bay Area exemplify Giai's commitment to incorporating Masonic elements in his design. The Astrolabe House, a 6,000-square-foot mansion in San Francisco's Bernal Heights neighborhood, was inspired by ancient Persian navigational tools and features columns and other symbols of Freemasonry inside and outside of the structure. The Chateau Golstan, a Giai home in nearby Walnut Creek, is in the shape of the square and compass and features a pool in the shape of the all-seeing eye and a winding staircase as a symbolic representation of the Velocraft degree. The house is surrounded with series of three, five, and seven columns, inspired by a numerological aspect of Freemasonry. While circulating through the house, visitors are continually led through a circumambulation similar to the one experienced in the degrees of Masonry. What are the benefits of a Masonic house, Gii asks? This would be like asking why we go through the Masonic ritual each time we visit a lodge. The answer to me is very simple and obvious. Our spirits are lifted and exalted each time we experience Masonic spaces, and this contributes to our well-being and our happiness. As an architect, I have always tried to derive my designs from the many aspects of our great craft. Yves Giahi has incorporated Masonic symbols in a wide range of projects, from hotels in Romania to resorts in Costa Rica. These elements are occasionally overt, but the majority of them are subtly incorporated into the structures. In looking at his past and planned projects, it is evident that Yves Yai is always trying to create structures that include as much of the craft's influence as possible. The proposed Masonic skyscraper, which in all likelihood will never be built, would be the pinnacle of achievement for an architect who has dedicated his career to transcending traditional notions about architecture by creating buildings that raise the spirit of those who step inside. Architecture Aims at Eternity, Christopher Wren and the New London by Richard Berman. The dome of London's St. Paul's Cathedral is one of the most recognizable and beautiful structures in the world. Standing more than 350 feet high, the building is a powerful symbol of England and the Anglican Communion. No less extraordinary is the Freemason who built it, Christopher Wren. Wren was born in 1632 to a clerical family and was raised in Windsor Castle, where his father served as personal chaplain to the King of England. As a child, Wren invented a pneumatic engine and a weather clock, and while a student at Oxford, he conducted important research in mathematics, optics, physics, and medicine. Before the age of 30, he was named Civilian Professor of Astronomy at Oxford, where Isaac Newton used his research in the formation of the theory of gravity. In recognition of his contributions, King Charles II, Wren's childhood playmate at Windsor Castle, named him a founding member of the Royal Society, a group of England's most distinguished scientists. In 1663, Wren traveled to Rome and began scholarship in the field in which he would make his lasting mark, architecture. 
inspired by a 1,500-year-old book by Vitruvius, namesake of the Masonic Lodge in Petaluma, Wren developed a keen interest in the theaters and temples of ancient Rome. Over the next three years, he established himself as England's foremost architect and designed buildings at Oxford and Cambridge that are still being used today. In September 1666, large sections of London were destroyed by the Great Fire, and Wren, at age 34, was appointed by Charles II to rebuild the city. While the Dome of St. Paul's, the fourth cathedral to be built on the site, is the most famous of his architectural designs, Wren supervised the reconstruction of more than a hundred important buildings, including churches, theaters, hospitals, and institutions such as the Royal Naval College. While many more of his utopian ideals for urban planning were never implemented, it is fair to say that modern London would be fundamentally different without his vision and genius. Wren, like the ancient Roman builders who he admired, viewed architecture as more than the creation of functional structures. He saw public buildings as the ornament of a country that makes the people love their native country. Indeed, he incorporated many elements of Roman design into his own buildings. The Dome of St. Paul's is modern after the Roman Pantheon, and several other churches and theaters include design elements from the ancient world. Not surprisingly, religious leaders who were uncomfortable with the Greek and Roman influence rejected many of his blueprints. Wren was given the title Surveyor General of the King's Works and dedicated the rest of his life to rebuilding his home city. In 1673, he resigned his post at Oxford because his high workload and two years later began work on St. Paul's. In recognition of his contributions to the country, Wren was knighted by Charles II that same year. Wren's major churches include St. Mary, Lebeau, St. James, and St. Clement Danes were completed before 1690, although St. Paul's, his largest and most ambitious project, was not finished until 1710. Although records are sparse, it is generally accepted that Christopher Wren became a Freemason on May 18, 1691, at a ceremony at St. Paul's, which was still in the early stages of construction. Regular services in the completed sections of the building did not begin until 1697. John Aubrey, a fellow of the Royal Society and an eminent naturalist, termed the ceremony as, quote, a great convention at St. Paul's Church of the Fraternity of Adopted Masons, where Sir Christopher Wren is to be adopted as a brother. There have been kings that have been of this sodality, end quote. It is fitting that the most eminent architect of his day, and perhaps of all time, was a Freemason. After all, the craft is based on principles of geometry and architecture that date back to antiquity, and Wren was a major figure in incorporating Greco-Roman elements, including the large domes, into contemporary English architecture. Christopher Wren died in 1723 at the age of 91, an extraordinary lifespan by the standards of the day. In a fitting tribute, he was the first person interred at St. Paul's Cathedral, which today holds the remains of eminent Britons such as the Duke of Wellington and Admiral Nelson. Wren once wrote, Architecture aims at eternity. Today, nearly 300 years after the completion of his glorious masterwork, it seems he may have been correct. Brothers in Architecture The Three Degrees of Walter Bliss and William Fayville For over 40 years, the Grand Lodge of California made its home at 25 Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. While not occupied by Masons today, it still stands as an enduring monument to Masonry and to an important milestone in the creative development of the men who designed it. Walter Danforth Bliss was born in 1872 in Nevada and attended MIT where he met William Baker Fayville. More than five years his senior, Fayville was born in California, but had grown up in western New York State. 
The two friends left MIT in 1895 and began work at the prominent New York architecture firm of McKim, Mead, and White. Three years later, the pair formed a partnership of their own and selected San Francisco as their base. In 1902, Bliss petitioned California Lodge No. 1 in San Francisco. Fayville petitioned the same lodge ten years later, with Bliss as his first-line signer. Just as their Masonic history reveals their progress through the three degrees of Masonry, architectural historians see their professional work in three degrees or stages of development. The first is a period strongly influenced by their MIT education. During this time, they demonstrated enthusiasm for the classic style, creating a solid foundation for their new practice, obtaining commissions for the Oakland Library, two bank buildings, and several residences. The second stage illustrates a more uninhibited form of architecture, incorporating various styles and creating a sense of diversity. Sent to Europe by Charles F. Crocker, who commissioned them to design the St. Francis Hotel, they studied the finest hotels in London and Paris. On their return, they designed the now-famous hotel, which was built in 1904. They were commissioned to enlarge the hotel in 1907 and again in 1913. By this time, they had entered a new period described by the architect and engineer of California magazine as an early Italian manner where brick, terracotta, and similar materials are wrought into forms of unexpected elegance. The Van Ness Temple is said to mark the beginning of this third and final stage. The Masonic Temple marks the culmination of work to date, architect B.J.S. Cahill wrote in his 1914 review, turned out by a firm whose most important service to architecture is yet to come. Since the Grand Lodge relocated to its current headquarters on Knob Hill in the 1950s, the Van Ness Temple has been sold, retrofitted, and reopened as a performing arts center, but with the exterior preserved nearly as it was originally designed. It stands as a testimony to the development of the men who conceived it, the two brothers in architecture who were masters of their craft. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.